Now please turn in your Bibles back to Deuteronomy 5, where we'll be reading two verses from that same passage, the prologue and the first commandment. Deuteronomy 5, starting in verse 6. This is God's word again. Give it your full attention. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. I must admit that I feel wholly inadequate to teach upon such an exalted subject as the first commandment. Volume after volume of books have been written, and indeed will be written, on these words. And it is the words, who is sufficient for these things, written in the book of books, which gives me comfort to bring what little I have to you. Follow not books, nor theologians, but God himself, and God alone. May he speak as I exposit and convict as I weakly continue in so great a commandment as you shall have no other gods before me. For this first commandment is the beginning of the first table of the law. The commandments that the commandment, rather, the single commandment that conditions every other commandment after it, just as Jesus summarized the law in two tables. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. We see we have the love of God here begun in the first table of the law. You must learn that this first commandment for Jesus and for all of Scripture, the Ten Commandments are not really about man. They're really about God and God-centered. The first commandment tells us that God exists and we are to deal with that fact in the right manner. God does not argue for his own existence here. Why would the eternal almighty God need to do that? No, the commandments are God-centered. You, human, may not exist, but God certainly exists. That is how certain his existence is, is proclaimed here. But we must be certain about what God means here about these words. He proclaims his existence, but when he says, you shall shall have no other gods before me, is he proclaiming the existence of other gods as well? Certainly not, at least in the way that we think of these things. Jeremiah 10 will suffice to show that other gods are no gods at all. The instruction of idols is but wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Apaz. They are the work of skilled men. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath the earth quakes. Jeremiah 10, verses 8 through 10. God is God, the only God, and so the first commandment proclaims. And these idols, the works of God's, uh, rather of man's, Hands to make gods are not gods at all. Other gods, so called, do not exist. 
They are forced into existence to serve the human heart who desire power, desire God's power to be placed in other things so that they might use it and might manipulate it. So, in our fallen human stupidity, their hope take the form of an idol. Why even have this commandment then, as we continue on in this idolatry, this question upon idolatry? If other gods do not really exist, why have this commandment upon not having them as a god? Because although they do not really exist, the human heart often believes that they do. The human heart will become enslaved to them if, as if they did exist. The world does not create idols. Our sinful hearts do. We, have no dif- we are no different than our ancestors. We place above or alongside God other things, sexual desires for which we fill our technology, an appropriate idol in our time. Place above or alongside the only true God, our practical basic needs, as Philippians 3, 9 aptly calls, making a God of our own belly, among an infinite number of other idols. This first commandment is negative in this way, that we ought not to have idols, but to have the true God as God. So that we see the enduring need to observe this commandment, especially by sinners with idol factories for hearts such as us. But this commandment is not only negative, that is, against something. This most important commandment shows us the positive and the negative nature of all of these Ten Commandments most helpfully. That is, you shall have no other gods before me. It is a negative command, as we've said. What that means is that this command restricts us from doing something. It forbids us from doing something, namely, having any other god besides God, idolatry. Although this is a restriction, a negative command, there is an obvious positive command or a requirement that comes along with this negative command. You shall have no other gods before me also positively requires that you should have only me as God. You see, it's quite subtle, but this is the case with every single commandment. They are mostly negative in their form, prohibitions in their form, but they all, by design, necessarily contain a positive requirement. There are only ten commandments, but each commandment has both a positive and a negative aspect, a restriction and a requirement, a prohibition and prescription. We have seen the prohibition in broad strokes. There are no other gods. Do not place alongside or above God anything whatsoever. God is singular, and you shall tolerate no idolatry. This is the prohibition. So what is the prescription within this command? Let me put it into a different question. What does it mean to have God as our God? First, it is to know that he is the only true God. As we ought to know already, this is part of what it means to be human, made in the image of God. We know these things, but we suppress the truth and unrighteousness, as we know from Romans 1. But having this knowledge 
and have him being changed in order to not only have this knowledge, but to rejoice in this knowledge. Second, it means to have God as our God, to choose to act upon that knowledge, at least to choose to act upon that knowledge in a righteous manner, to confess that God is God and the only true God and our God. And second, to make it central to our life. As it is said before in Joshua, choose this day whom you will serve. But for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Choose this day whom you will serve. That is, to choose the Lord in these things is part of what it means to have God as our God. He is central to our life and to our daily decisions. And therefore, lastly, to know, to choose, and then to serve him as my God. That's what it means to have God as our God, to know, choose, and serve him as my God. In the end, then, to have God as our God is not much different than to have and to hold our spouse as our spouse. We not only confess that they are our spouse and not only choose to have them as our spouse and serve them as our spouse, but above all, we love them as our spouse. To have God as our God is to love him as our highest good, the highest authority, and the highest and best thing in our lives, and to live according to that, to choose God, the God who has chosen us. This also helps us to see the character of our choice. It is a singular choice. We may not have other gods, as he says here, not only because other gods are not true gods at all, as we have seen, but because even if we were to just act as if they were true, we would be committing adultery against the true God, the God who is deserving of all praise and glory and honor. He certainly is glorious and honorable, but he is also jealous, as every husband ought to be, for the exclusive love of his, his bride, the church. So we have come to Christ's conclusion for this commandment when he says, The most important commandment is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength, he says in Mark 12, 20 through 21, as the summary of the first table of the law. In the opposite way, to have, quote-unquote, another God, is to attribute to other things what only belongs to God, and therefore to place our love in a ghoul of our own making. Let us learn his names, his attributes, his works, and his worship. If any of these are given to anything other than God alone, then the first commandment has been broken, and serious and grave are the consequences of doing this. God has many times directly given the consequences for this blasphemy, as we see with the death of Herod in Acts 12. And the people were shouting to Herod, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck Herod down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. He broke the first commandment and was judged immediately. 
But there are some examples which puzzled the Jews. For decades, a man went about freely within the lands of Israel and spoke for himself with God's names, attributes, works, and worship, saying, before Abraham was, I am, John 8. He says he existed before the world with the attribute of glory in the same manner as the Father. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed, John 17, 5, and says, imagine if anyone were to say these words, believe in God, believe also in me. I and the Father are one. This man's name was Jesus Christ. He really lived, he really walked this earth as a historical person. One of the greatest questions with which we have to deal in this life is, who is this man, Jesus? And how could this most pious man not break the first commandment, saying these words? The Jews brought their answer. Applying the first commandment, they would accept no other interpretation. This man was a liar. He was the worst type of liar, the one who knowingly deceives others into thinking that he was God himself. The Jews said, this man, Jesus, is a liar and the greatest of sinners against the first commandment, who therefore deserves death. So goes the, Jew, the Jewish view, even up until this, this day. And the Romans brought their own answer to this question of who is this man, Jesus, The Romans brought their answer after hearing Paul speak on Jesus. They mocked him as a babbler and one who spoke lunacy. So his criticism continues, or rather, this criticism continues until our own day. Jesus, from those who are wise in their own eyes, may have had some good things to say, and he was probably a good man, but he probably wasn't all there. But these two inveterate opinions are hopeless to actually understand the facts in comparison to the first commandment. First, as we know from the first commandment, there is only one true God. And if anyone makes himself out to be God and is not God, then he will die and be condemned by God, as he's done many times before. And there will be consequences even in our own lives, if we do these things. He's proved it, especially in the day of Jesus, when Herod died. Even among the Jews, they struggled with this problem with Jesus. How could a man, cursed by God because of the first commandment, do such great signs, miracles, and healings? They asked among themselves, on the day when Jesus was sold to the Jews by Pilate, The rulers of the Jews had the audacity to say to him, that is, to Pilate, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. Yes, they were thinking about the first commandment. And then immediately after, they had the gall to blaspheme God, to seal the deal and say, we have no king but Caesar. Before God, the King of Kings, in Jerusalem of all places. And after they had finally completed the betrayal and the murder of Jesus, which they desired, 
because they judged God was taking too long to apply his first commandment penalty, what did they do? They ignored the proof of his resurrection. They lied about it and sneered at his followers and eventually incurred the great and terrible wrath of God not long after in 70 AD when all of Jerusalem was destroyed and all in it scattered, never to be recovered. The curse of the penalty of breaking the first commandment came upon the heads of the Jews and they were crushed by it. Those who called Jesus a liar became liars and those who desired Jesus' destruction were destroyed. The Jews had their opinion of Jesus and it was proven false by God himself. You will see him there, Jesus, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and the brilliance of truth you do not need to simply hear me say it. I would encourage you to go and see that Jesus is true. Nor only is Jesus revealed in Scripture in the brilliance of truth, but also in the brilliance of sanity. This man, Jesus, unlike the Roman lies and in interpretation, was completely sane and a genius, which still astounds people to this day. Many, although they cannot bring themselves to say Jesus was a liar and a grave sinner, for calling himself God, can bring themselves to say that Jesus was probably a fool, or perhaps he was a lunatic. But you'll find in Scripture a man of will, determination, and mindfulness of every step. He never did anything but which he decided long before to do. He was indeed unpredictable, certainly, but not because he was insane or illogical. No, in fact, the Jews heartily acknowledged his sanity, when trying to catch him on multiple occasions. Finally, after the wisdom and logic of Jesus was too much for them, they answered Jesus in Luke 20, verse 40. Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any questions. Was it because he was an insane man that they desired not to answer him anymore and his answers were not clear? Far from it. Everywhere, the scribes and the people, even in this same chapter, Luke 20, 26, says, marveled at his answers and became silent because of them. This was no insane man who spoke nonsense and made his followers even more insane than he. After Jesus resurrected and left, had left earth, did the Jews make mincemeat of his apostles through logic and facts? upon Peter's incredible boldness before Jesus' murderers, proclaiming the salvation and messiahship of Jesus, what did the most educated of the Jews in the scriptures at this time, in all of the world, say to these people, to the disciples of this apparent lunatic, Jesus? Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, that is, the scribes and Pharisees, and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Did you catch that? They were uneducated, common men. But once they recognized that they had been with Jesus, it all made sense. They had sat at the feet of a genius. And they were unable to oppose the avalanche of truth which came out from their mouths. We must face up to the claims which people have of Jesus. Either call Jesus God or call him a liar or a lunatic. You may call him these things. But you yourself will be wrong. He is Lord. Jesus is God. 
and he is Lord. He is not a liar nor a lunatic. And let us not call him the pathetic and patronizing terms of a good man or a prophet or a teacher of ethics. And let us not hear these things either. We must not allow people to patronize him in such a way. Now we must do so in gentleness and respect. But these are not terms fit for God himself. It only shows that you have never heard Jesus if you use these terms, nor understand the terms that you say. What would Jesus say? Before Abraham was, I am, he says. I am the Alpha and the Omega, he says. I am not of this world, he says. I am the way and the truth and the life, he says. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Does Jesus think that he is a liar? Is Jesus out of his mind? But you need to wait, not wait long to hear God's answer to these questions. Of course, we have heard already from his word, but we will hear it from his very mouth. He will come soon, and everyone who now feels the face of God looking down upon him but represses it just as God says in the first commandment, shall have no other gods before me, for we are all indeed before him now. Yet denies that they know these things in unbelief, will soon confess before the very face of Christ Jesus, with pierced hands and feet, descending upon a dying world, full of, eye, of rage and pity, lighting the world in beautiful wrath. Every eye will cry at his beauty and confess him as Lord. For we know that this first commandment shows us there is no neutrality. We either believe God or we believe a lie. Either you believe in God and you are saved through him, or you believe what is not God and you fall under the wrath of God because of it. Every act of man is a moral act. Every act of God is either for or against the people on earth, that is, for their salvation. He has worked for the salvation of a great multitude. And there are many who will not choose him. He has hardened the hearts of many. There is no neutrality. Either we are brought into newness of life, or we are hardened by our own sin. This first commandment shows us there is no neutrality. And it was this beautiful wrath that descended upon the one God, Jesus Christ, for the sin of his people, which he took upon himself, that he might purchase for himself a people. That although all of us are worthy of wrath, he took upon himself the wrath of God, even as God himself. As Anselm has told us succinctly, God had a debt but did not owe it. Man had a debt but could not pay it. Only in the God-man, Jesus Christ, could the debt be both owed and paid. And as we have said many times before, our salvation depends upon Christ being God and nothing less than God. For he was the only one who could take an eternal punishment, the eternal punishment which our sin deserves. 
And as we follow this law now, as a matter of course, for Christ, although in heaven, has sent his Holy Spirit, that we might be changed in our hearts as we now cry, Abba, Father, our hearts still create idols from time to time. But we are still in these bodies. The Lord has not yet descended in beauty. But for those changed by Christ, our hearts are free from breaking the first commandment. The Holy Spirit works within us, crying, Abba, Father. Now, in Christ, we look up to Christ naturally as part of our new nature. We look up where we tried to once obscure these Ten Commandments, especially this first commandment, saying that we ourselves are God. The Ten Commandments have been placed upon our hearts once again. We must never forget the wonder of this most important truth that forever transforms our understanding of the the first commandment and the Ten Commandments themselves as it was intended to be understood. There is only one God. And Jesus Christ is that God. Christians do not place Jesus alongside God as if he were some new God to be worshipped. There is only one God, and Jesus Christ is that God. If we confess anything less than this, then we call him a liar and a lunatic, and he is no savior. And the greatest first commandment breaker of all history, in fact. Just as much as the first commandment forces us to say, there is only one God and the Father is that God. So we must now say, because of Christ's person and work, there is only one God and Jesus Christ is that God. There is only one God and the Holy Spirit is that God. And there is only one God and the Father is that God. Mystery upon mystery, brothers and sisters. We are monotheists, and we will always be monotheists, brothers. Let us have no other God but this triune God, and no other Savior than Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Our salvation is from this Son. And because there is no neutrality, And we could not choose him. He changed our hearts that we might have faith in him. He has changed us that we might glorify him. That we might follow this first commandment by the Holy Spirit within us. And rejoice at doing so. Rejoice that he is our only God. Instead of look at others and envy that they have. Things that we don't. Which they don't. The things that the world goes after are not real, and they hurt themselves in doing so. We have truth, brothers and sisters, and truth revealed in greater understanding than the Old Testament. We know that Jesus Christ is God, and we have a meal with him every Sunday. Do we understand our privilege in these things? Do we understand that Christ being God, died upon the cross for us. Do we understand our privilege and the hope that we have in him? We are monotheists. Let us confess that Jesus is the one God. Let us 
go to our great God in prayer. Our Father, our Jesus Christ, our Holy Ghost, we come to you in prayer, for you are the one God, and you have, all of you, saved us through your work on earth. We thank you, Lord, that you have done this, that you have revealed to us your Son and shown in such a wondrous manner things which we have not just difficulty, but things that are beyond our comprehension, understanding. And yet, Lord, we thank you that you have revealed them to us, small creatures as we are. Give us greater and greater understanding, as you have shown us from the Old and New Testament, that you are the one God. Create in us a a clean heart, O God. And after having done these things, we pray that you would make us not to have another God. Lord, that you would destroy the idols within us, that you would make us constantly vigilant. Lord, that in this great sin of blasphemy, that you would make us watchful and repentant, that we might have faith in Christ and by the Holy Spirit be brought unto that great day of redemption. Be glorified, O Lord, we pray. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.